Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Boss, is it hard to give up control? No, of course not. I can play both sides of this. You're you're a team player. That's what we like about you. for sure. You know what? uh, Team players show up for big months. You know what a big month is? Monster Month on the podcast. Oh, is that what it's called? Monster Month? It is Monster Month. Exactly. And so, uh, Annie F. Downs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Luke Norsworthy. And we will try to record this one time, unlike my show that we had to record twice. (laughs) We did it twice. But like they say, twice makes for spicy Mm. conversations. Sure, sure. And that's what it was. We're going to do this one once. We're going to be one hit wonders right here. Yes. You can call me Sugar Ray because Mm. I'm going to get one hit and, and that's it. Okay, great. Do you know what one hit that was? Um, I just want to fly. Want to fly? Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. gonna get it. I just had to think for one second. That's a good song. I my parents would not let me own that CD. What? I was a senior in high school. No, mm. junior, senior. I, I I could I know I could drive. I just there. I knew it was well. I guess what I knew is I guess I didn't ever ask them. I thought they would not want me to own that CD. And you just didn't get it because you're like they might not like it. So this is as rebellious for real. This is rebellious that I, this is as rebellious as I've gotten. I was Mm -hmm. as a kid. I bought it with a friend. He and I split it. We split the pie, the cost. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to it one day and he'd listen to it the next day. And then Mm -hmm. I would listen to it one day and he would listen to it the next day. Wow. (laughs) Because then I like owned it, but I didn't. I mean, yeah, that was crazy. What a rebel. Wow. When but I here's was, the problem. That tell, that behavior isn't that bad. That heart of rebellion mm. is pretty gross. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty bad. Okay. So give me an assessment on this. When I was a young man, probably eighth or ninth grade, I had a whole stack of rap albums, okay. including The Outcast, which are from uh, your neck of the woods of Georgia, yeah, yeah. that uh, were confiscated because of said parental advisory explicit lyrics warnings on the CDs. Oh, wow. And then I went and tried to steal them from my dad's closet. Uh, that did not oh, wow. go well. Oh, so, yeah. What happened, though? What happened? Yeah, like he found, like I was walking through the house with like a big squares underneath my T-shirt. Oh, um, my gosh. And he so, was like, yo, kid, I've been a person so much longer <laughs> than you. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, that happened. Um, so if we were going to compare and contrast the partial custody you had over Sugar Ray's I Want to Fly album to, uh, to a you much, going into yeah. your parents' closet and, and, st- and bringing outright back. taking back yes. your things. Yeah, taking back Sunday. Um, yeah. Oh. That's, a, that's a van. <laughs> yeah, it is a van. <laughs> well done. Yeah. So in, as the, the Apostle Paul, who you love so much, would mm-hmm. say... Um, you know, if you've broken one part, you've broken the whole thing. That's that's not the Apostle Paul, but it's in the I was Bible. Say, is that what he would say? No, but if you've broken one part, what I'm saying is that you and I are equal sinners. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I would think that's true. It is. I mean, yeah, it was very. Um, I, it it is such a mild behavior with such a dark heart behind it. Mm. So, are you talking about you or me at this point? Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. <laughs> Good, good. Which is fitting because we're talking about the heart, which is where yeah. monsters dwell. And yes. you know what we're doing on the podcast? We're doing the month of monsters. 
because I have a book that that's coming out. And, you know, there's something weird about like just talking about your own book on your own podcast. Yeah. But that's what, no, you weren't Yeah, I saw you had um, Jason Miller interview you about I did. It. I yeah. did. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. And so he, he, he did that. And then I'm going to have three friends uh, talk about the specific three monsters that we talk about in the book. So we're going to kind of just, uh, it's not just me talking about myself. So it won't seem okay. as narcissistic. So you're here. So I don't feel bad about myself. Right. I think that's great. Okay. That's good. I'm ready. That's good. You're ready? Okay, so we're going to talk about the monster of more this week. Now, we're going to talk about the monster of comparison with our friend Manda Carpenter. Oh, and then, gosh. You know Manda. I love her so much. Yeah. she. Think, her voice is going to continue to be more and more influential and important in so many lives. She is so talented and has such a special story. Wow. That's a ringing endorsement. I'm a huge fan of hers. When we are in groups of authors or groups of speakers, or if someone asks me to do something I can't do, Amanda is one of the first names I give people of like, but you know who you should read or you know who you should call is Amanda Carpenter. Wow. There you go. Well, let's see what you say about the third person in the third monster we're talking about. A lot of pressure. Uh, This is the monster of success. So this kind of fitting. Uh, our friend Jonathan Merritt. Oh, good answer as well. And he is, he is so publicly and privately, but publicly for so many people, he just wrestles publicly with what he struggles with. So he is the right guy to talk about this. Cause he's talked about all this publicly, even from like shaving his head. And he's mm-hmm. so prof- he's so profound and such a good writer. Yeah. You've, I'm, I'm glad I'm going first. <laughs> That's <laughs> Let nice. me be the opener, get me out of the way and then get the real ones up. Look at you. Look, like this is like the monster of humility that you've got That's, to deal with here. No, I mean that it. Is, that is, <laughs> is it humble if you mean it or is it only humble if, if, if you're saying it because it's a nice thing to say? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've never really known much about humility, so it's hard for me to really even <laughs> begin to answer that. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So the idea of the monster of more is uh, it is the idea that I am what I have and whatever I have never feels like it's enough. Yeah. And so whenever I was thinking about this struggle, I thought it, it's got to be an Enneagram 7, but right. it's not just Enneagram 7s like you and I. I think it happens f- for everyone in, in unique and different facets. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think most of my friends would say that there are moments they feel like that. I think a unique difference to my personality and from what you're saying, your personality, because you also self-identify as a 7, is is that I do, this may be Suzanne Stabile's um, word picture, but I do often feel like on my worst days, I am a bucket with holes in the bottom that cannot be filled up faster than it's losing. And I don't know that everybody feels that. I don't know that everyone feels that exactly, but I do, I really do. I have to fight that. Yeah. I I use the metaphor of like this cracked vessel, which is the same same imagery of... Mm. No matter what you get, it, it's never enough. But then I think it would look different for, for every different number, though, that it's, you know, for, for a one, it's not perfect enough. For three, it's not successful enough. You know, for, right. you know, for eight, it's not as controlled as you want it to be. For six, it's not as secure as you want. For, for four, it's not as authentic as you want. For five, it's not as much information as you want. Yeah. And yeah. so to some degree, I feel like it's, it's, it's in all of us. Uh, but for you, as you're trying to figure out like this metaphor or like this understanding of yourself as like this, this bucket with holes in it, was it something that it took you years to finally understand, wait a minute, this is what's going on inside of me for you to like process that? Yeah. You know, I don't, I, that's a great question. I don't think 
that I was blind to the feeling. I think I didn't have words to express the feeling. So I don't think it was brand new for me to feel that and for me to go, my gosh, I feel, I feel like I can't keep up with how quick my joy is draining and the fun experience isn't filling like I thought it would. And, but then thanks to Suzanne and some other writings about Enneagram, thanks to my counselor, thanks to going to onsite, which is like a, a, I went to the living centered program at onsite, which is like a week long kind of intensive therapy thing. They all, all those things kind of work together to give me language and tools to help me, uh, be able to describe what I was feeling. And when you can describe what you're feeling, other people can help you. That's why doctors say what hurts and you have to tell them. Or when your car is broken and they say, well, make the sound that your car makes. It's because it's really hard to fix something if you can't identify what's broken. Hmm. And so once I was able to kind of say, hey, here's, here's the pain point and here's what I'm experiencing. And then I was able to start getting some healing around it because I was able to put words around it. So you have to be able to articulate what's going on with you for there ever to be any development and growth in that area. Yeah, I don't know that I'd say ever just because someone will argue with us on Twitter or Instagram or something. But yes, I have found in my life that until I'm able to put words to my feelings and experience, I am unable to put um, action toward making it better. Yeah. So when you're putting words to this feeling... Like, how are you doing? Because for me, I, I noticed early on, and I didn't know this was unique about me, but early on I realized I would think, wait a minute, if this is good, why don't we get more of it? And then I would look at my friends and go, wait a minute, but this is good and you guys don't want like exponentially more of this. It's almost like you're right. just saying like, there's a little bit, that, and it didn't make sense to me. And I just assume like my friends are all dumb. I, I didn't realize <laughs> that, that like my bucket had extra holes in it. Yeah. Until much later. And so yeah. when you're able to have words for that, you start being able to tell your friends, how, how does that go? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's gotten, I mean, it's a practice, right? I mean, one of the, I think one of the best things we can encourage our faith friends and wherever they are in their faith walk is to remind everybody that, that this is all a practice for all of us. Like we are all, that is why fasting is considered a, a practice and, and Sabbath is a practice and and so for me, even the discipline of talking well about my feelings is a practice. And so it, what I say to my counselor now versus what I say to my counselor when we started in 2013 are very different because I've practiced. And so for a, a lot yeah. for me, I, am, I benefit a ton from even, I mean, Luke, this is such a simple example, but I, you know, everybody's on Marco Polo because we can't see our friends as frequently right now. And it's, I'm on this one Marco Polo with two other girlfriends here in Nashville, and they were helping me solve a problem, but the way they phrased it, the way I was hearing them was, well, we don't actually think there's a problem in the first place, so, but we hear you that you're in pain. And I had to say back to them, hey, I, it feels like you don't think there's a problem here. And they were both like, oh my gosh, no, of course we think there's a problem. I'm sorry you heard that. I could have gone to bed that night and been so sad, feeling so misunderstood by my friends. If I wouldn't have just said, I think I, I think I feel like you feel like there's not a real problem here, Hmm. you know, and it would have still been better. So I got the best result possible. There was a misunderstanding. They were on my side. 
there is the worst result possible is going to bed with a misunderstanding and moving forward like you are alone in this world because you did not communicate. And somewhere in the middle is you communicated and they and you were right about what they thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has happened to me too of like, hey, I, I don't think you think there's a problem. And the friend says, yeah, there isn't a problem. And I go, oh, that hurts my feelings because I think there is, you know? And, but it's still better than assuming what someone else is thinking or feeling. Yeah. So. So when you're trying to figure out how to express feelings, now this is obviously a subject matter, which I am quite proficient and my wife would say I'm an expert on this. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about feelings. Do you feel like it took you longer than other people to be able to communicate your feelings or is this something you think is, yes, okay. Yeah. Why, Why do you think it took you longer? You know, I don't know. I don't like the I don't like the phrase late bloomer. I don't think that's kind to anyone. Um, mm. So I, I wouldn't say that. I really wouldn't say that. It's not. I I bloomed perfectly fine as a person. I went to college. I you know I graduated and did all the things. I've been an adult for a long time now. Um, I think that for a long time I didn't. I didn't know well my own feelings, so it's hard to communicate to other people when you aren't even sure of what your own feelings are feeling. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my problems. And then another problem is it's not fun. It's just pure not fun to talk about when your feelings are hurt or when you're confused about something. And there was a good chunk of my life where I wasn't willing to have conversations that weren't, I mean, I had to, everybody does, but I certainly didn't want to initiate unfun conversations. Yeah, that's I, I can relate to that. I've never been like that for one day in my life. <laughs> but you said it was hard for you to know your feelings. How did you come to know your feelings better? Um, I think I, I had to learn what the feelings are. I mean, my counselor has a feelings chart sitting right there on the table <laughs> like right the, in front of me. Like, how is your pain? Zero to ten, like with all the sad faces on it? Like that sort of... Yeah, no, like um, angry, sad, lonely shame, you know, like joy, you know, kind of like what the actual names of the feelings are. And we still, we still pretty frequently should say, okay, well tell me what feeling that is. And I'll say, I don't know. I makes my stomach hurt and I feel scared. And I, I'm worried that, that no one's going to love me after this. And she goes, so it's actually just shame. Right. And I go, Oh, I'm, Oh, I'm just feeling shame. Oh, well, shame's from the devil. I don't have to feel this. This isn't me being corrected or told what to do. This is from the devil, you know? And so that really helps me having, and so that's one of the ways I've been able to say my feelings is I've learned how to better talk about my feelings. And also Luke, I've also, um, it still fits under the need for more because I would like to fill up my life with fun experiences and fun conversations and, um, and not fun in a silly way, but fun as in like, Man, I love talking about theology. Let's just sit and talk about theology. Let's not talk yeah. about how my feelings are hurt. Yeah. Or I love talking about favorite restaurants. Let's talk about that. Let's not talk about the sadness in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's just significantly easier for me. But what I have found is as I have grown in appreciation for being Annie and that God made me just like this with room to improve, of course, but but I am not concerned about being rejected in the end because I will not reject myself. Hmm. And used to be, I needed everyone else to accept me because I did not accept myself. And I do now. And so I, while I really like people's acceptance and it really matters to me, my own acceptance is not at risk anymore. 
Can I ask a follow-up question on accepting sure. yourself? Uh, of like, I, I don't. I feel like this is too personal, maybe, or maybe just because we're talking about feelings, and I just all of a sudden feel uncomfortable. <laughs> maybe that's what this is going on. Uh, when you're saying that you didn't accept yourself, yeah, how did that manifest? Yeah, so a lot for me was uh, the way I looked, the, whether it was the shape of my body or the look of my face or whatever especially in teen years, but that doesn't stop when you become an adult necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, a lot of it was um, they aren't going to pick me because of how I look. I've got a great personality if they'll stick around, but I I can't win them on first blush, whoever them is, a guy that I want to date, a group of friends, an audience or whoever. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the actual truth is that your shape doesn't determine your confidence. Yeah. And so when, when you actually just get confident about who you are as a person and go like, yeah, it, there are people of all sorts of different shape, size, look, uh, color. I mean, there are all sorts of different people who are all loved really well on this planet and who are all very proud to be who they are. I can be that too. And then it just makes me braver to say my feelings to people. And it makes me less self-focused and more others-focused, I think. I mean, I still, you know this very well, I still struggle with all this stuff and still at times have really hard days with not feeling like I meet the expectations that the world has for what a woman's supposed to look like. But nine days out of 10, I'm pretty fly, if you will. And (laughs) I'm all right. Call back. And you're welcome. And... Nine days out of 10, I am not worried. I don't want to be rejected, like I said, but I don't need to fill up my life with more and more and more because I'm, I'm a very full person on my own. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's the healing side of being a seven. That's the healing side of befriending that monster for me is going like, yeah, I'm always going to want more. So what if I actually just found it in the life I already have or in my relationship with, and this is going to sound Christian-y, but in my relationship with God, what if, what if I called this more? Yeah. What, how different would it be if this didn't feel like less, but it felt like more? Yeah, because there's a, a drastic change that happens when you don't approach everything as though you need it to validate your existence. Or, Listen, you yes. know, if you don't need, if you don't need, I need exponentially more happiness or fun or laughter or whatever, because I'm needing something to like fill and to mask and to cover Mm -hmm. things that I don't want to access within in me that are like the harder parts of life. Mm -hmm. But instead, like I think the move is once you, once you befriend the monster of more, what happens is the the light gets in because then all of a sudden you're able to see everything as a gift Yeah, because things stop having to like live up to something which they were never created to be. (laughs) Right. Luke, that's brilliant. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, is your, your perspective shifts, my perspective shifts when I go, what if this is actually abundance? What if this is actually everything and more that God has promised me? It doesn't look the way I thought, I, and I still have things, we all do, we're all humans, we have things we want that we don't have, but what if this life is actually more than, what if I already have the more, and, and that changed me when, when my thinking changed like that. Yeah. Did you see yourself changing the way that you interact? Like if, if what you're saying is that whatever them is, they're not going to accept me, group of people, individuals, stage, whatever. Yeah. How did you find yourself, what, 
first of all, is it fair to say that you approach those things differently? Totally. And then how, how so? Yeah. I mean, part of it is I don't, um, you know, there, there were times when I would be getting ready to walk on a stage. I can think of one time in Orlando, Florida specifically, and the crowd was full of men and women. And, and I, at the time, this is 2012 or 13, didn't speak in front of a ton of men. It was mostly women and teenagers that I was teaching in front of at the time. Now it's more Sunday mornings and mixed and whatever, but at the time it was more, it was one of my first experiences. And before I walked on stage, I thought, I know the girls will like me. I don't know that the guys will. Wow. And, and the problem with that, whether it's true or not, the problem with that is that I decided that they were going to reject me. I didn't let them reject me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm the one who made the call versus but- going like, I bet these people, because I'm, I, I believe God's asked me to talk about what I want to talk about and what, what I've outlined here. I bet that it'll connect with every person out there. And the, for the ones that don't, okay. And instead I gave half the audience permission to reject me because I rejected me for them. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, no. The idea of giving someone permission to reject you is like it, it, it doesn't logically hold up because you don't need permission to reject her. So it's almost like we play these games as a way to like protect ourselves or to prevent 100%. ourselves from like yeah, the left. Right? If the dudes didn't like my talk, I can say, well, I knew ahead of time they wouldn't. Yeah. But now the thing that happens is, and this happened in the last. Mm, eight months, 10 months. This is one of, I haven't spoken a bunch lately, so I don't want to be too specific. (laughs) None of us have done a lot of teaching, (laughs) but I, uh, in the last year, I, before I went on a stage, I knew that, and it was a mixed audience, a large mixed audience of men and women. And I knew that I was going to say something that was a little bit pushing their buttons as far as, uh, prophetically and kind of charismatically, so I went to the leader first, Luke. I went to the pastor and I was like, hey, I, f- I would like to say this. Is that okay with you? He said, oh yeah, for sure. Say that. I got up on stage and it bombed. I mean, it bombed <laughs> so hard that it was like I was being stared at by people who did not speak my same na- native tongue. Uh, uh-huh. it, and it, and, but here's the thing. I didn't walk off and go, I knew they weren't going to like that. I walked off and went, well, the leader told me I could do it. And I felt like it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. So, and then, of course, about two weeks ago, I get an, an email and a letter in the mail from two people in the audience saying that it connected with them. And I was like, see, if I would have rejected myself and not done that one thing, I, I'd have missed out on an obedience opportunity that I feel like yeah. God handed me. Yeah. Does that make and sense? Yeah. The, I, the idea, like, I mean, obviously we have different experiences of, uh, like having like the men and women thing there's a world like uh, it's just as a guy like there's different questions that you have uh that so a lot of this is me like processing oh okay this is so so different but in some ways it's not i mean every one of us Mm -hmm. wants to be accepted every one of us wants to have what we think is important and and valuable to be cherished by other people as important and valuable we we all want that no one wants to be you know Hey, I'm too cool for school because I don't care about school. Usually, like this is every rom com, right? Like they, right? Like That's the, right. the one, one woman says, "No, I don't want. I don't want to get married. I don't want to have this." Or the guys like, "I'm too cool to be in a relationship with someone." It's really because yeah. you're afraid to get rejected again, right? That's not it. obviously, not everyone right. wants to be married. Whatever, but that's a good example often, of what I'm with you. 
<laughs> okay, okay. Um, but we sabotage ourselves beforehand as if that would make it not hurt as much. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, 100%. And I just don't do that anymore if I can help it. I don't do that with stages. I don't, I'm not married yet. I don't have kids yet. I don't do that with single men that I meet. I don't automatically go, oh, well, he's going to put me in the friend zone. I genuinely automatically go, well, this may be something. I wonder if this is going to be something. Mm-hmm. And then if we end up being friends, fine. But I'm not going to reject myself. If I'm attracted to that guy, I'm not going to reject myself. And no. when he hasn't, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, and so you, it just changes that, like, filling up of my life of other people's approval changed when I felt full of approval from myself and God. So I, I've noticed this uh even with my own kids, like their level of confidence about their ability to do various tasks is specifically gymnastics tasks. (laughs) Well, it's largely contingent upon who they are. Like some, some people just come out of the oven and we don't put our kids in the oven, but love the metaphorical oven. And they just approach life different with different, like, right. Like, so yeah. For some people, the idea of everyone's going to accept me, well, that's just natural. Uh, f- for others, it's like y- you have to work on it. But That's right. But it's almost like we're all having to to decide how we're going to deal with that that question of, I, I, I don't feel good. I don't feel accepted. This isn't right. I don't yeah, feel so comfortable. Yeah, so the people who kind of are more naturally, are more naturally like uh, not feel accepted in big groups what's their fight in this? Like, what's their struggle? Wow. Uh, that'd be interesting to ask a bunch of different people what they would say. Yeah. It, it seems... When, um, when I was in grad school, I, uh, and I was about to go meet Lindsay's parents for the first... No, this is uh, senior year of uh, undergrad, I guess. Okay. And uh, I was going to go meet Lindsay's parents for the first... No, no, it was the fall of my grad school. And I was going to meet... Lindsay's parents for the first time. Thank you, because we're I, all we've all got a calendar written down. You got to get it right. <laughs> it someone someone will know exactly the story, and it won't be my wife because she might not have listened this far in the podcast. But <laughs> it happened, and so I was a personal trainer, and I was working uh, with this guy, and I was you know telling him what's going to happen, and he goes, "Are you worried uh, about meeting him?" I was like, "Well, no, they're going <laughs> to." And I was like, "No, I think it's going to go great." Now, obviously, yeah. I put my foot in my mouth when I um, gave her cousin a bloody nose. Um, but I'll say this: that was the toughest fifth grade girl I've ever seen. Uh, You're lying. No, was he, really he was he he was a boy. But uh, the story's better if it was a girl. But yeah, I gave him a, a bloody nose, and my oh, phone wow. went off during the prayer with the whole family. Oh but wow! Besides wow, those wow, two wow. things, it was really it was it was fine. Uh, and I said some stupid stuff as well. Uh, so obviously it wasn't perfect. But I just naturally assumed as a 21 year old, oh, this is gonna be great, right? And the guy who's personal training for it. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Now, as as a thirty eight year old, like I see how ludicrous that was, and it was ridiculous for me to feel that way. But like I didn't do anything to like make myself confident like that. It's just like what I was born with, and often yeah. confidence and competence are not correlated. And sometimes people can uh, be very competent because they're disillusioned on reality. So okay, co- confidence. Yeah, because I wasn't born naturally confident. I've had I've I have to work at it. But you were born naturally confident. And have to work at making the competence meet up with it. <laughs> yeah, like I have to be realistic. Okay. Like, yeah, okay. like l- life has has taught me that numerous times. And so, thirty eight year old Luke is uh, far more sober to my own uh-huh. acumen. Uh, but yeah. w- 
so to, to say like everyone's quest to feel like people are going to accept them. Like, I don't think everyone has that struggle, but I think everyone has struggles of, I need to come down to reality and reality, whether it is everyone loves me or everyone hates me, both of those things are not true. Both of those things are not real. Right. And I think those right. are things that can haunt us. But if you, if you go far enough down underneath them, I think there's an invitation for each and every one of us to approach mm. life in a healthier way. Yeah, yeah, that feels really true. And I do like, I feel like we're good, two people to have this conversation because we are the two ends of the spectrum that have spent our thirties doing the work to get healthier. There's still space for me to go, but to get healthier and kind of swing down to the middle. Yeah. Or, or even like to Terminal the metaphors light. obviously broke broken here, like to, to step off that game and to play a different game. Like the mm-hmm. idea of everyone's going to love me. Or everyone's going to hate. Me, like that's a terrible game because right. Like it's neither of them are going to work. Like That's right. no one's ever going to completely hate. Well, give me some time. Maybe I could get everyone to hate me. <laughs> but you, but even you, like everyone loves Annie to the point where I like I, I get sick of people saying, "What's Annie like?" Like I, I'm sick of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sick of that. Uh, she smells like a tangerine. Like it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I wish that but was true. even you. Even you, like not everyone's going to love Annie. That's right. That's that right. might be impossible, but that's but no, there's true. a different game to play, which is I don't need more approval. I don't need more yes. like validation. Instead, yes. I, I can receive whatever's in front of me as a gift because I know who I am on my own. Yeah, and I think that's really good. I, I think that's what spirituality offers us. Is not like you know here's here's some five tricks so that everyone's going to like you, but instead. The, there's one understanding that, that God has accepted and loved you and everything else on top of that, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That that feels really true to to find that spot of um, you're, you are going to be enough and you are not too much. You know, like yeah. you're going to be enough and you're not too much. And, and you will, and time helps too, right? Like time For helps sure. so much. But sure. yeah, that's really good. Okay, um, my brother once gave me a Snuggie for Christmas. Okay, and Great. I th- I think it was like a, a white elephant gift. I don't think like he went out and bought it. I just think he had it. He's like, oh, I don't want to buy Luke anything, so I'll just give him this for Christmas. Uh-huh. And I didn't throw it away because I feel like that's like how you get on the naughty list and don't get any presents sure. from Santa. And so I took it home with me and I threw it behind this reading chair in my office. This is our old house in Denton, which you've never been to because you've been yeah. to my house. You're like, wait a minute, there's no, no office. Yeah, it's, right. it's nice. Um, but threw it behind the office chair. One day, like a week later, I'm reading, I get cold. Moment okay. of weakness, reach back, grab the Snuggie, take it out of a little clear plastic bag and I put it on. And I don't know if you've ever tried on a Snuggie, but they're they're... They're no, I've amazing. literally never touched one. It's it's they're they're great. Like they're warm like a blanket, but functional like a sweatshirt. You like sweatshirts, you like blankets, yeah. mix them yeah. together. I'm sure there's somewhere in Leviticus that would say it's a sin, but I didn't know that. <laughs> and I went with it. And so I really liked it. Now here's the thing. I thought it was the dumbest gift ever, and I never would have purchased it for myself. But since it was a gift, I approached it vastly different. Like I, yeah. I and I think when you think see things as a gift instead of something that are trying to like plug up a bucket that is porous, that can't hold anything, the experience is drastically different. And so for, yeah. for you, like I, you've had some pretty substantial success, like with, with a lot of things, you know, podcast has done well, 100 Days to Brave obviously did, did extremely well, many books have yeah. done well. But if you're using all those to like validate like, hey, Annie's enough that I'm accepted, oh gosh, it, it probably never would have gotten there. 
well, who knows what would have happened with the work? I would have never been satisfied. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can't predict what will happen with the work, but I can for sure tell you that every piece of success and failure would have felt incredibly personal and would have said things about me that are not true. Yeah. On either way, on the success side or the failure side, but that's not... um, You know, I I think you know the story, but I mean, my first agent I had in 2009, we quit working together after a year because I got 47 rejections on book deals. There's not even that many publishers. No, It was like multiple... Uh, published multiple acquiring editors at each house said no. And so I, for about a year and a half, I thought my dream of being an author and a publisher was, or an author and a speaker was done. And in that process, what God was able to do, because he's kind to me, he's kind to all of us, but his kindness to me was separating my identity from my job. And, And so now when successes happen, that's great. That means we can keep doing our job and I'm right online with what God's asked me to do. And, and, but it doesn't say a lot about me. And when failures happen, which they do a lot, I mean, I got three real rejection emails today. And when failures happen, you go like, yeah, that's terrible. But also that doesn't say anything about me either, any more than the successes do. Yep. And so, and so that's how I have, um, I had to lose every opportunity to do this for my identity to be separated from this career. For sure. It's, it's almost like a healthy identity is like this governor that like you put in a car yeah, and all of a sudden like you can't go as high, but in some ways like when you have that, you also can't go as low. It like, it, yeah. it kind of like, it, it kind of tones everything down because your success, oh, that's cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's awesome that it happened, but it doesn't define you and your failure. Uh, that stinks. That's, that's crappy right. that it happened. But again, it also doesn't, define you. And so right. you don't have like this, this thirst that you're always grasping for something to fill it up. I mean, it's real fun when your success defines you. I mean, really, it's great when, when yeah. people are only deciding how they feel about you based on your success. It's pretty fun. That just is never last. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I live in Nashville, a town full of country music stars and country music used to be stars and country music about to be stars. And and the, it's real fun when you're the you're the hottest group or the hard, hottest guy, new guy singing. It's not as fun when you're the one that's sitting there watching the new guy win everything. Yeah. And so I get to watch it up close too and go, you know what? I don't want to be defined by the good days because then you get defined by the bad days. But if you just enjoy the good days, then you just survive the bad ones. And so it is, you know? I just am grateful that I've gotten to watch that up close here and watch some of my friends in that industry do it really well. And it's just made for a, gosh, it's just made for a significantly better experience, I think. Hmm. You know, usually a good interview, you're able to like kind of yes and, but country music, I got nothing. Um, (laughs) That's okay. You don't have to. Sorry. I feel like like all country songs are like sad though. Like, you know, my my wife left me, my dog died. Yeah, that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that it? Right? Yeah, I mean, that's what people say, but it's not really true. But yes, I can hear you. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, I mean, but you see it. And like, let's, I, here's an example that you know very well. In, in football, <laughs> right? I mean, if every player defined his whole life based on what happened on the field, they, they're, the emotional no. trouble from week in to week out for those guys who define themselves by what happens on the field is, would be too much. You know? I like that. I like the football metaphor. That was good. Yeah, I liked I like it. it. 
Yeah. I can talk football too. I love that stuff. You you really do. Come on, sports. Come on back, sports. I'm ready. But seriously, yeah. Uh. Me and the girls uh, have been watching the edited version of the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh, there's Last an edited Dance. version. Yeah, like I think it's on like ESPN two. Anyway, it's on oh, YouTube. Oh, that's TV. interesting. Yeah. So oh, we watched- I, let's talk about this. Yeah. I've watched every bit of it. Have you really? Yeah. Of course, I mean, what else are you going to watch right now? Of course you have well, to watch Well, also, it. if you want to speak to any man about a conversation, if you want to have a conversation with any man between the ages of 32 and 45, you better be able to say a little Michael Jordan something. It's what everyone is watching. Is it and so, only to 32? It's, it's only to 32? I mean, maybe oh. it's younger guys, but I don't talk to guys who are younger than <laughs> <laughs> You might get arrested if you're talking to 24-year-olds. Um, right. But, but that's but, not the reason I'm watching. I mean, I also, you know, yeah. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and I enjoyed watching Michael Jordan. And so it's, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So you see this guy who obviously is at the height of athletic success, obviously. But you also see that there's this, um, like, it costs a whole lot to get there. Yeah, and there is almost like this maniacal obsession with winning and he will win at all costs. And oh my gosh, how about this week when he said, um, if you don't know why I'm being a tyrant, then you've never won before. I, I there's like, part of me. My there's, gosh. Part, there's part of me that really just absolutely loves it. And then there's a Christian part of me that's like, man, you you need to befriend your monsters, bro. Like yeah. this is but I would never he's Michael Jordan. So like he's he can get away with it, we'll I guess. We'll send him Except, a copy of the book. We should, yeah. If you have yeah. his address, just send it over mm-hmm, to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, what's crazy even about him, though, is like you said, if you're always based on success, eventually he's going to fail. And people talk about his baseball thing like he failed, but I, like, he hit over 200 that's after not playing baseball for 20. Like, he that's still pretty is a professional baseball player, for Pete's sake. Yeah. So, like, that's success. And obviously, he owns a team, but his basketball team has been like the laughing stock of the NBA for years. It's, it's, it's often understood as like one of the worst run, the, the least successful organizations in all of the NBA. So at some point, he's still having to face... Before him or after him or both? Like he, he owns a team now. Like he's the boss oh. of it. Oh, and I didn't know that. Which team? It is the uh, Charlotte team. Oh, interesting. Where he is, because he's a North Carolina guy. Yeah, yeah. The Bobcat Hornets, whatever you want to call them. They've, Are they Bobcats? They've kind of, whatever. We'll call it whatever. But okay. um, the, the point is like he, he's been super successful as a player, but then at this facet of his life, it's like, it's not there. So it, it, the point is that like, if you're always going to let the highs and lows of success define you, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what you see. And I mean, his story is so interesting you, because everyone's going to age. Everyone's going to stop playing the sport they play. Everyone's going to not be the number one. I mean, here's the thing. You hit number one on New York Times bestseller. And then what? Yeah. Right? Like you want to hit it faster next time? Like like success is never satisfied. It's yeah, never satisfied. There's not a dollar amount. There's not a amount of time, days and weeks you can be on a list. There's not enough championships. You're never satisfied. Yeah. And so you yeah. just it's beautiful to let go of or redetermine redefine what success is for you so that you can hit it. Yeah. Well, I would say the move is, especially when it comes to the idea of like, I need more accolades and and more achievements is just to accept whatever you have as a gift and to be grateful for it. And then instead of the move of, I need more of this to, I I need to experience, I I need to be more grateful for what I have. Instead of, I I need, I need more vacation or I need more, you know, whatever it's like, how do I get the most out of what is right in front of me? Yeah, that's right. There's man, that is so it. And like determining 
if I don't need more, what's really healthy right here? Like mm-hmm. what's success right here? What, I mean, before, to me, before a project starts or a book launches or anything, you need to say like, here is failure and here is success because you won't know you hit either of them if you don't define them. It's the same. I mean, we're having the same conversation we had about feelings where you can't, you can't define your feelings until you say what they are, until you learn how to define them. And you can't define success and failure until you say it. Okay, two things. That talk about feelings, that was rough. That was I know, sorry, that was I'm, longer than I'm, you wanted. I'm glad to be, we got sure. through that one. That was rough. Yeah. Uh, second thing, you, you def- I, I feel like I did pretty good. Um, do you really set out and say, this is what the failure would look like for the book? I mean, yes. what number of book are you on right now? Like um, the next the one, one that comes, that comes out in February will be nine. Okay. One, two, yeah, something like that, eight or nine. So you sat down and said, this is what failure will look like for that? Yes. Is it too personal? Ask what? Can, can well, you give me ballpark? Yeah, I don't want to. Wanna... Well, I mean, it's not a numbers for me. Yeah. Failure. So success is around a number because we have this really fun plan. I we, we have to. It's not finished yet, so I can't talk about yeah. it yet. But there's a really fun plan if we do a certain amount of uh, books and hands in the first week of the book existing. So to me, that will be our success mark. Is I want us to get to do this really fun thing with everyone, and so I want to hit that mark. Failure to me is um, is far more based on my behavior than the book buyer's behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Now, so for me, I'm defining failure like, well, you you didn't show up when you said you'd show up, or you. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. To me, failure is Annie was given a list of things that would help make sure this book succeeds and she did not do them. Yeah. That's that's... failure. If I do everything I'm supposed to do, I cannot control how many books go in hands. I can only control me doing my part. And so failure to me is if three weeks after the book is launched, I haven't done my part, then I failed. Numbers of book sales aren't going to determine failure for me. Yeah. Okay. One, the fun thing if you succeed with whatever, yeah, is it swimming with sharks? No. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that my I only swim with sharks if your wife agrees to do it with me or be okay. on the boat. Let's go. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. The other thing about failure is it, it's not about numbers. It's about things you can control. Because obviously, as Ecclesiastes says, like the race is not always to the swift, the battle not always to the strong, but time and chance right. happen to them all. Right? It does. But for me, when I think about like a sermon that didn't go well— I'm always asking the question of like, was I prepared? Did I do everything I could? Did yeah, because how did you determine they don't go well? Yeah, I mean, because that's as capricious as, you know, if someone slept enough the night before to if they did or didn't have their coffee to if they got in the right. fight with their spouse or their kids right. an idiot. You know, like all those things affect someone's phenomenon that is the preaching experience. And yeah. the same thing with like, you know, book sales or a lot of facets of life is you can't control a lot of those things. And if those are the rubric which you use to validate your existence you're setting yourself up for some like pretty crappy existence. But if okay. you have something to, to, to ground yourself in and then instead you just evaluate, did I show up? Like, I like the way yeah. you said, did, did I show up? Like, that's that's what you can control. I like that. That's right. Because it's, it's the same. I mean, we're literally having one conversation, Luke, because it's the same thing. If you're going to determine your success based on what other people do and based on what other people um, determine like if you decide that your sermon's good based on how many people come up and tell you afterwards it's good, you have put way too much power and hope in other people. No, you. The thing is, did I did I plan what God would have me say today? 
Did I do the practice? Did I do the research? Did I do like, I'm speaking tomorrow morning, right? My success level tomorrow morning at this company that's having me come in and do like a devotional. My success level is not going to be how many of them hug me afterwards. Though, of course, I want them all to tell me how much it matters to them. And I want them to hug me. I, I mean, from a social distance. That's sorry. Yes. Social distancing. I'm yeah, you're right. It won't be a normal one tomorrow. Of course, I want people to tell me I'm awesome. But when I fight that down and stop asking for more accolades and I go, okay, actually, I need to put some time into my talk tonight and make sure it's right and make sure I'm saying a thing that really encourages them and helps them have a good day. If I can do that, then when I get back in my car, I've done it. And, and I can only feel good about that if I accept myself. I will only accept myself in this scenario if I do the preparation that is right and good for me to do. And then I can walk in there and go, I'm giving this the best I can give it. And, and, there, and, th- and that's all I can ask of myself. Yeah, because there's so much that you just can't control. Right, to, to, right. Today's the, my first day back in my office in eight weeks. Uh, like I've, I've come up here on Sunday morning, but like to actual yeah. work during the week, I've worked from home and I, it was weird to look, I had this, this 10 week checklist based board for my next 10 sermons and yeah. I left 10 weeks ago on a you know Thursday expecting to have Suzanne Stabile help me out that Sunday. And then right. I, the, the next 10 weeks and Suzanne, of course, never even made the trip to Austin and all these things never, ever happened. And it's been like this fitting reminder, like I can be super prepared. I was ahead of my schedule for like three weeks out. Uh, I was three weeks ahead of, of all the work I should have had done. And yeah. then COVID happens. And then, you know, my, my family stuff happens. And yeah. like that's, you, you can't control what happens in life. All you can do is control you being show, like you there, you showing up and being prepared. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, okay, Annie, this has been fun. This has been very helpful. I feel like we've helped people befriend the monster of more. And while success, like it's not something we chase after, but everyone should go buy my book and leave a really nice review. Yeah, Um, there you go. That's that's, exactly right. If you want to befriend your monster, that's what you do. It'll fix everything. I've I've read the book. I wrote the foreword. It is a very good book. I highly recommend people reading it. Mm -hmm. Over under number of shark references that you expected versus what you experienced. Yeah, I I expected five and I think we only did like two. Okay. But you're yeah. also going to be on my show, That Sounds Fun, this Thursday, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more shark talk. A lot more shark stuff. Yeah. What do you think we'd have to do to get like a shark expert on your podcast? I would have to care a whole lot more about sharks uh, to get a shark expert on my podcast. Okay. All right. If you're a praying person and you listen to the podcast, now know how to direct your prayers. Uh, yes. For that. That's right. Oh, my okay. gosh. Annie, thank you. Proud of you, buddy. Can't wait for okay. everybody to get to read this book. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.